please turn again to Mark chapter 14, uh, where we will be considering the section we read in verses 22 to 33. Taking verse 30 as our sort of theme summary. Peter cried, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. The Lord's Supper is a spiritual feast for faith. Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, uses the word and sign to nourish and sustain the pilgrim's faith till we reach the end of our journey in the celestial city. This means the Lord's Supper is for true believers only. So it is our task to come to the Bible, search the scriptures, find out what is true faith, examine ourselves, and if we do not have true faith, the table is not for us until we have such faith. And if we do have such faith, then of course we are to come. And in the theme of the communion season, you'll note that you begin low and then you start to ascend the mountain of the Lord. You begin low with humiliation repentance, contriteness, a broken spirit. And then you start to ascend by being encouraged, if you're Christ, to know I am the Lord. He has given me the grace of faith. And this salvation is mine. And the Lord's table, I am invited and I am welcome in his presence. And then you will rise further still next Saturday when we discover the graciousness of the Saviour towards sinners. To help us understand and know objectively what is saving faith, come to Mark 14, 23. And in this narrative, we will find many lessons about true faith. And we will summarise this passage under four headings. One, the test of faith. Two, the evidence of faith. Three, the infirmity of faith. And four, the acceptance of faith. First of all, the test of faith. The context is Jesus Christ has fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. As he does so, he departs suddenly. Verse 22. And straightway, that's immediately, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Constrain means to compel. Jesus Christ is 
compelling his disciples to go away on their own across the Sea of Galilee. It's very strong language. Why is he compelling and urging them to go away alone? Two main reasons. First of all, they must depart from the crowd because they tried to make him a political king. John 6.15, the parallel account, says, When Jesus perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him king, he departed. And so he says, go away, cross the Sea of Galilee, let's get away from this crowd. But there's a second reason. To go alone upon a mountain to pray. Verse 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. What is Jesus Christ doing praying on a mountain alone? Well, the particular passage doesn't reveal explicitly, but gleaning from the general teaching of the New Testament concerning Christ's prayer life and the narrative that follows, we can state that Jesus Christ prays for God to be glorified in the Son and that the disciples' faith would be grown. We get this from the general teaching on Jesus Christ's prayer life. What did Jesus Christ pray? John 17 gives us a summary not only of the prayer after the Upper Room Discourse, but the general themes of his normal prayer life. And you can summarise his normal prayer life in this way. Praying for God to be glorified in the Son and praying for the faith of his disciples. John 17 verse 1. Father, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. He wants God to be glorified in the Son. And then in verse 8 of John 17. I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed. He prays that they would believe him and in him as the one sent from God. And when you look at what happens after the prayer, these two things are present. It's not a coincidence. We see here the glory. Verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. He's going to be glorified because the disciples are going to see him walking on the sea and they're going to conclude verse 33. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. John 17, normal prayer life, 
He goes up on a mountain to pray. He walks on the sea. And the confession, truly he is the Son of God. But then secondly, we also see the disciples' faith. We see that explicitly later, where there's a conclusion. Where Jesus says to Peter, O thou of little faith, 31. The storm is a test of faith. What time did Jesus go up on the mountain? Says he explicitly, the evening. The evening. That can be anywhere between 6 and 9 p.m. Once he went on the mountain to pray, what did he see? Matthew does not record this, but Mark does. Mark 6, 48. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them, Interesting. So immediately in the evening between 6 and 9 p.m. Jesus Christ is on the mountain and the ship is in the midst of the sea. This is another evidence of his glory. It's four miles away in the middle of the sea. It's a storm, black skies, thunder, waves and wind. And he sees them toiling and struggling. When does he come? To help them. It says here. In the fourth watch. Verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night. Jesus went unto them. Walking on the sea. The fourth watch of the night. Is any time between 3am. And 6am. Now put that together. He goes on a mountain in the evening. 6 to 9pm sees them struggling in the storm and does nothing but pray. And at least six hours they are struggling in the storm. And then sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., then he walks on the water, comes to get them. Why does he do this? To test their faith. What will they do in the midst of the storm? Will they look to themselves or will they walk by faith and trust in the Son of God? And this teaches us two things. One, Jesus sends trials to test our faith. Jesus sends trials to test our faith. Just as Jesus was on a mountain overlooking the disciples in the storm, praying for them, and their faith would be proven true through the storm, looking upon every disciple now, interceding on our behalf to test and mature our faith. alone but for them also shall believe on me through their words that's me 
That's you. On earth, when Jesus was on his knees or standing up or on a mountain or in the middle of the wilderness or in Gethsemane or wherever he would be praying, who is he praying for? You and me. Isn't that astounding? In Exodus chapter 28, verse 29, God says the high priest is to have the 12, the names of the 12 children of Israel on a breastplate and it must be put on his heart so that he represents his people in name and in love and serves them. Jesus is our great high priest who has all the names of all his true disciples on his heart as he came to this earth to atone for their sins, to be raised and ascended to heaven and intercede on their behalf. That's where you are with Christ now. Your name is fixed firmly upon his heart. And as he is up high, as he is praying for you, he's praying for your faith. He wants your faith to be proven true and to grow and to mature and sends trials to do that. First Peter chapter 1 verse 6. Now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Trials is probably a better translation there. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with appearing of Jesus Christ. There are seasons, and Jesus Christ decides the seasons. If need be, he has the wisdom and the goodness to know if he needs to send a trial here or there or there. Though you are in heaviness of heart, trials are not easy. We're not supposed to go through trials like stoic and robots. We're to feel the heaviness. It's a good thing because you're realising it. What's the purpose? The trial of your faith. Gold is true or false in the fire. If it's a false gold, it will melt. If it's true gold, it will endure. And if gold has dross on it, the dross is burnt up, it ends up pure gold. And your faith is worth much more than gold. It's easy to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. And then the trial comes. Because what kind of soil has the seed of the word been received? False Christians, as soon as they get burning fire, well, I didn't sign up for this. I thought Christianity was about health, wealth and prosperity. And so when things are going well, I'm a Christian. When things are going bad, I want nothing to do with Christianity. But true Christians, they feel the heaviness, they feel the burden, they feel the tears. But nevertheless, it's proven true. 
It might be encompassed by dross, but the gold's still there. And so this helps us to know that Jesus Christ is going to prove and mature our faith in trials. Which means when a trial comes, the first thing you say, it's for faith. It's for faith. I am. And the dross of unbelief, the dross of pride, they've been burned up. And I come to the Lord God and say, you, you only can get me through this. You're the only silver lining in the cloud. You're the light at the end of the tunnel. Nothing and no one else but you. And therefore your faith is proven true. The second thing this teaches is that Jesus Christ sees your trial. Remember, he went on the Mark 6 told us he saw and was watching the disciples toiling. He is protecting them. Even though they're in the midst of a storm. Same today. You have a trial. Where's God in this? Where is he? Oh, he sees. And he's in chapter 5 verse 6 held in the midst of the having seven power perfect power and seven eyes perfect sight which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth the lamb is Jesus Christ on his throne he has perfect power he can do everything and anything he pleases And he has perfect eyes because the Spirit of God is on this earth helping and serving and blessing and And Jesus Christ is in absolute control. He will not give you more than you can handle because he'll give you the grace and the faith and the comfort and the mercy that you need. That's why he says to the disciples later, let not your hearts be troubled, neither believe. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither be afraid. If you believe in God, believe in me. Because I'm on my throne, I have all power, I'm watching, and I will help you. So know that, brother and sister. When you are in the affliction, when you are in the furnace, when there's fire surrounding, look by faith. Your faith is being strengthened. And Christ is watching, he is helping and he will strengthen you. So Jesus Christ is doing all this to test the disciples' faith. Secondly, the evidence of faith. Now, round about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., the fourth watch, Jesus now comes, verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went up to them on the sea. And as the disciples respond to this, there are certain lessons and evidences and marks of true faith. And I want to summarize with four marks of true faith. Test yourselves, brothers and sisters. These four marks, to whatever extent, will all be present in faith. First of all, the nature of faith. Hebrews 11.1 says that 
faith does not see by sight, by feeling, by touch, but by trusting in the unseen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And this is because faith comes from the word. Romans ten seventeen. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And we see that in Peter. When Jesus Christ is walking on the water in the midst of the storm and they look by sight, the disciples, they see a false view of Jesus and fear. Verse 26. And when the disciples saw him, sight, walking on the water or the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. They see and walking on the sea. They're trying to have a look at him. They can't see truly. And they say it's a ghost. Superstition. And they're full of fear. This is an illustration of what it's like to look by sight. When people create a Jesus according to their own flesh, to their own imaginations, to their own likes and to their own tastes. Where they have a very human only Jesus who's just like them. And then a trial comes, a storm comes and it brings nothing but fear. But when it comes to the true Jesus, true faith comes through the word of God. Verse 27, And straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, it's the word of God, true faith comes. Jesus Christ reveals himself through his word. It is I, be of good cheer, do not be afraid. And hearing the word of God causes Peter to have faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And this is necessary for true faith. That your faith is based on the Bible and not your own imagination or your own thinking. That the Bible is the revelation of God Jesus Christ and everything in this Bible you believe take the miracle Jesus is walking on water as Christians we take that for granted we just think about that what if I told you I saw someone on the lake you would doubt me straight away wouldn't you what if I said to you last what would you say bring it back to reality Jesus true faith believes that because we believe in the supernatural God was able to walk on water do you believe that 
Do you believe Jesus literally went to blind people who couldn't see? Believe literally that Jesus came to a man with a withered hand and it grew and became whole again. Do you believe he went to a young girl? Order to arise when she was dead, and he literally raised the dead. Faith believes the Bible. Walking on water, miracles, sin, hell, judgment day, grace, love, mercy. Do you truly believe the Bible? Second mark here, the object of faith. Faith, by definition, needs an object. Too many people today describe faith as a thing in itself. I'm a man of faith. I'm a woman of faith. I have faith. I'm a person of faith. Hear that all the time. Politicians, musicians, people on the streets. What does that mean? That's nonsense. Faith is a trust in a person. Faith isn't a thing. It's one person putting their trust in another person. So to have faith, you not only have the trust, you have the trust in the person, the object. So let none of us be a man or woman of faith. Let us not be, I have faith. But when we say we're believers, we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's Peter here. He comes and he sees Jesus and he believes and he says, Lord. Lord. He's putting his trust in Jesus as Lord. And when it says Lord here, it's not just a term of respect like sir. It is the full, magnificent foundation of all understanding of lordship in the bible in other words god who is the covenant lord what's jesus doing here walking on water and in the bible who walks on water no one except from jehovah job Chapter 9, verse 8, speaking of the Lord, which alone treadeth upon the waves of the sea. Psalm 77, verse 19, again, the Lord, thy way, thy path is in the sea, thy path in the great waters. Isaiah 43, 16, thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Peter puts his heart trust in Jesus as Lord, God, Creator, the one only who has the power to walk on the sea. And sometimes Christians paint this scene as if it's calm, serene waters. 
It's a storm. It's the waves are contrary. The waves and the wind is storm. And yet in the midst of the tumult, Jesus, the Lord, controlling all things and literally walking on the sea. You must believe Jesus is God. You must trust in him alone who is able to save you from your soul. Because you need one mediator. You need one God. And that one man, Christ Jesus, God and man, alone to bear infinite wrath. And to die a death which we deserve. And so you come to him, not as not as a mere prophet as he is these things. Not as a mere miracle worker. But the only faith that is true is the faith of Thomas, my Lord and my God. And how do you know you truly believe Jesus as the Lord? You worship him. Jesus is the mediator, so you worship the Father in the name of the Son, by the Spirit, yes. But Jesus Christ is the That's what makes us Christians. I do not worship the Father alone. I worship the Father, the Son. Like the wise men coming and bowing down and worshipping him. Is that you? Do you adore and worship Jesus as your Lord. Third mark of true faith, the submission of faith. Peter confesses and believes that Jesus is his Lord, and then what does he say? Lord, yet if thou bid me come unto thy come come unto thee on the water. Lord, bid me. I'm not just going to do it. Whatever you command, I will do. You're the Lord. You're the master. You're in charge. Bid me. Me. But. 1990s, there was this big, big debate, especially in the Baptist world. It was over when they come to term lordship salvation. And there were two sides. Side number one uh, were evangelicals who believed in a carnal Christian. You can have Jesus as saviour but not as lord. You can believe him as forgiving your sins but repentance and lordship and submission and obedience are not necessary for true faith. And the second side says, faith alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, but all who have faith alone will have Jesus. They will repent from their sins. They will have and they will submit to the authority as evidence of true faith. And sadly, the first one 
is possibly the most common in evangelicalism. But the right one is the second one. Romans 8, verse 4. God the Father, to save us from the law, so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, sanctification, who walk not after the Spirit, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So, a true Christian or not? The Spirit of God is within you, enabling you. And you think as you not according to sin, but according to obedience. Sanctification here. So sanctification is one of the evidences of your justification. To the Lord Jesus Christ in bearing fruit of obedience is the evidence of a true justifying faith. Hence James chapter 2. What he said, a faith without works, he said it's a false faith. But he says, I'm justified by my works. Which means I am proven to have true faith good works it's one because a bad tree produces bad fruit and a true tree produces true fruit none of these works justify you your sanctification doesn't justify you but they're fruits and evidence of that faith which just you submit to Jesus as Lord is he your king? Is he your master? And his commands are good and beautiful and wholesome and life and pleasing. And therefore not perfectly, not sinlessly, but evidently and sincerely from the heart. You seek to obey Jesus Christ as your Lord in every area of life. Try to have him as Lord over your family life. How you treat your wife, how you treat your husband, how you treat your children, how you educate and bring them up, how you teach them, what you wear, what you do, your leisure time, your movies, your music, your entertainments, your leisure, what you think, your morality, your ethics, your life. Everything is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Both mark the fellowship of faith. The fellowship of faith. Why does Peter want to walk in water? It's not walk on water. Verse 29. And he said, Come. Peter was come down, he walked on the water. He didn't want to walk on water, see. He can walk on water, look how amazing I am. He wanted to walk on water to go to Jesus. 
of love. He desires the presence and the fellowship of his saviour. People say Christianity is a relationship. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Because it's not just being declared right in the sight of God. It's not just being forgiven. As we were thinking in the catechism class, there's a higher blessing than justification of forgiveness. Adoption. Adoption. Because now we go from being rebels to sons. itself is for the higher purpose of fellowship my keepeth he it is that loveth me and he that loveth me shall be loved of my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him We want to be in the presence of the Jesus we love. We want to be with him whom our souls love. And so for fellowship, we love him. For fellowship, we love his commandments. To be with him. and loving Jesus as an evidence of true faith. Sometimes as Christians, we can speak of Christianity without the Christ. It's salvationanity, churchianity. But for the Christian, they have a heart full of love for him. And his beauty and his glory and his excellency. Is that you? Is that me? That you want a relationship with him? You want fellowship with him? You want to be with him and his presence? Can you say truly, Whom have I in heaven's high but thee, O Lord, alone? And in the earth whom I desire... Besides thee, there is none. If you can truly say that, then you're Christ. You might say, I wish I desired it more. So do I. You may say, but my love and my longing is so little at times. So is mine. But can you say that truly? Then you have faith. of faith. This is true faith. But look thirdly at the infirmity of faith. Verse 30. Peter might have true faith, but it's not without weakness. 
And when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. He's walking in the water. He's going to Jesus. And then he starts to sink. Why? Because he has little faith and he's doubting. Look at verse 31. Jesus says unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? True faith. But Peter's faith is little and doubting. To waver and be in two minds. That's doubting. To waver and be in two minds. But there's a difference between the doubting unbeliever and the doubting believer. For the doubting unbeliever... It flows from a heart of unbelief that doesn't want to trust in Christ and live for him. Because the doubting unbeliever means they have to give up their sin and they love their sin more than Jesus. They love their own pleasure more than his pleasure. They will not give up their sin and therefore they doubt, they waver, they're of two minds. But the doubt of a believer is different. It flows from a heart of faith. The doubting is concerned that they have doubts. It makes them anxious in a good way. Because they want faith and more faith. And therefore, they bewail their doubts. Now, why would they bewail? Why would they be so concerned? Because they have faith. And Peter is a good example of the doubting believer. The first good example is this. Why does Peter doubt? Verse 30, when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He began to doubt because he looked away from Jesus. Think of a trapeze artist. It has to be completely balanced. And they have to walk on that rope, steadfast, eyes front. They start to look left. They start to look right. They're going to start wobbling. That's the doubting believer. When our eyes are firmly fixed on Jesus, we can walk in a straight line. We're walking on water. But when we start to look left, and when we start to look right, we start to sink. We fix our eyes on the trial. We fix our eyes on the sufferings. We fix our eyes on ourselves. We fix our eyes on our sin. We fix our eyes on the devil's wiles. And we start to waver and sink. But what does Peter do about it? Lord, save me. In the doubting, in the wavering, in the littleness of faith, he looks to the Lord to save him. Just like the psalmist, Psalm 77. In the doubts, in the fears, in the anxiety, in the worries, who are they looking to? Jesus, help. At the end of the day, who should be at the Lord's table? Anyone who can sincerely say from the heart, Lord, save me. Lord, save me from myself. 
Lord, save me from my doubts. Lord, save me from my unbelief. Lord, save me from my weakness. Lord, save me from my failings. Lord, save me. Do you have that faith? Lord, save me. Fourthly and finally, the acceptance of faith. How did Jesus respond? Verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him. Isn't that wonderful? Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus saved him. Why? Because Peter had faith. He may have a certain adjective of faith, little, but he has faith. The Bible gives different descriptions of faith, but they're all true faith. To the centurion and a great in this the centurion and the woman of Canaan, great faith. To Abraham, Romans four, strong faith. To some Christians in Rome, weak faith. To these disciples, Mark chapter eight, Mark chapter fourteen, little faith. But what's common here? Faith. It's faith. Whether we have little or great, weak or strong, so long as we have faith, Christ accepts it. Christ accepts it. And Christ does two things for Peter. Number one, he touches him. Jesus could have, and often did, heal and save with just a word. What did he do here? Jesus came to him, stretched out his hand and grabbed him. Number two, he came to Peter and corrected him. Oh, thou of little faith. Why? Because Jesus desires us to have strong faith and great faith. He wants us to grow in faith. What are we doing next week? The Lord's Supper. What's the purpose of the Lord's Supper? First of all, that we get a better grip on Jesus. In the Lord's Supper, you get the same Jesus preached in this pulpit every single week. But you get a better grip. A wife knows the husband loves her. Because hopefully husbands... We say it regularly. In the reading and preaching of the word, he loves us. But there are times when we're sinking and we need a kiss and a touch. And in the Lord's Supper, you don't only hear Jesus Christ, but you taste and see and feel him. And Jesus desires for us to grow in him. The Lord's Supper is a means of strengthening your faith. Because we're all men and women of the dust, touch, taste, see. And as I touch the bread... 
and I physically put it in my mouth. And as I touch the cup and I physically put it in my mouth, it's a, a grip of Jesus growing our faith. So if you are someone who doesn't have this true faith, unbelievers are not to come until they have faith. But if you are someone who has this true faith, whether it's the great faith of the women of Canaan, whether it's the strong faith of Abraham, whether it's the weak faith of Romans 14, or whether it's the little faith of Peter, you are to come to the table so that he will grab you by his hand and he will grow your faith. And when you come, come in the conclusion of this chapter. What does verse 33 say? They worshipped him of a truth that he is the Son of God. We've emphasised the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. It is. But that's not what it is first and foremost. First and foremost, it's a means of worship. It's a means of worship. So you come to the Lord's table in your faith and you worship Jesus as the Son of God. You give him praise that he would save you. You give him thanks that he keeps your faith and it's not about your faith pressing on. You come and you give adoration of his deity and incarnation and mediator and his works and his offices and you give your heart to praise the Lord. Test yourselves, whether you be in the faith, whether Christ be in you. Let us pray. Lord, our God, we are so thankful that in the word of God, we have objective truth to test ourselves by. We pray, O Lord, that unbelievers would truly know their unbelief and that they would see and desire by the Holy Spirit their need for faith. And we pray that, O oh God, Jesus Christ would grant by the Spirit and the Word faith to them. But we pray for all thy people. Lord, whether we are strong or weak, that we would all say, Lord, save us. And in this faith, we pray we would come next week and he would let him kiss us with the kisses of his mouth, for his love is better than...